Good morning. It is Kale and Company live here on WKXL. 103.9 in the Capital Region, 101.9 in the Manchester area, 1450 AM and nhtalkradio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. Learn more and find your plan at deltadentalcoversme.com. And our guest this morning is a name that some of you may be familiar with, many of you as, as a matter of fact. We have on the line Chris Saliza, and uh, Chris has covered Washington politics for four decades with stops at CNN, The Washington Post, and Roll Call. And uh, Chris, welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to be here. Yeah, it is our pleasure, and uh, Chris has a new book out there just uh, on the market, Power Players, Sports, Politics, and the American Presidency, a terrific read no matter uh, what your affiliation uh, may be. And uh, it, it's a book that uh, humanizes our, our presidents from uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower to uh, the current occupant of the Oval Office. And was that your intention, Chris? Um, yeah, I think so. It's, you know, it's one of those things I never know. When I, when I started the book, my intention was to finish the book. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> along, along the way, I think you pick up some of those things. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what drew me at first to the subject was um, to try to, you know, we know so much about these people, and yet uh, we don't know all that much about who they sort of were as people. And I always thought that sports was a way into understanding a little bit better about who each of these people was uh, when they were younger, as they aged, you know, sort of what they cared about that wasn't about politics. I'm glad you said a book that's good for anyone, no matter what your party affiliation. That was really one of my goals. I mean, I spent years writing about politics and realizing how incredibly polarized uh, the country is. And anytime you write a book that touches on politics, I think people, a lot of people say, nope, not interested. And I I just want to urge people, this book really keeps the focus on sports. Uh, Yes, of course, it's about politics in that it focuses on the American presidency and the presidents from Eisenhower to Biden, but it really tries to see it through the lens of the sports they played, the sports they loved, the sports they watched, uh, and sort of what that can tell us about who they are and how they govern. So I try to keep that focus narrow, both for my own sanity, but also for for readers. And and, and my second question today, maybe it should have been my first question. Do you ever think that Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon would be fired on the same day? <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised we didn't lead off with that. I, I know, um, I should have. <laughs> I did I did not. I mean, one of those people being let go in a day is a huge news story. Both of them within an hour is sort of unprecedented. Um I know little about Tucker. I've never worked at Fox. Uh, I know Don personally. He is a friend. Uh, I, I spent five years at CNN. Um, I am always hesitant to celebrate. I know, I know a lot of people sort of celebrated Don and and, uh, and Tucker getting fired. I'm a little hesitant to do that. I, I don't love to celebrate people losing their jobs. At the same time, um, I do think it represents a, represents a shift in cable news. Look, cable is changing and rapidly evolving. Uh, the Trump era was... Uh, incredibly good from a ratings perspective for cable news, but I think also has left cable wondering what's next. You know, how to cover Trump going forward. What does it look like? How partisan should it be? How partisan should it not be? And so I think we're in the midst of a real sea change. And I I think that these these moves... 
are, are some of the first of a broader shift that I think we're going to see. Yeah, uh, probably so. You know, if we had a little bit more money here at WKXL, we'd try to hire them both and, and put them on together. I think that would be, <laughs> be a, a good show. Yeah, yeah. My gosh. <laughs> That's your be a lot of conflict. Yeah, really. So let's talk more about the presidents and start with uh, President Eisenhower, the first president you covered in this book, who loved golf, was a, a chain smoker, as we found out, and uh, nearly died at one point on a golf course. Yeah, so you're exactly right about Ike. I mean, this is someone who played golf uh, far more than any president before him and far more than any president after him. And he used to take three months, usually from August to October, not off, but he would go to Colorado and he would um, uh, he would play golf and he would do some work, but he would mostly play golf. And so on one of these outings, I think it was 1953, um, he was out playing golf and uh, was on the front nine, and his Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, kept trying to get in touch with them. These are This is obviously pre-cell phone, so Foster Dulles would right. call someone, and then an aide would come and tell Eisenhower, hey, he's trying to get in touch with you. Eisenhower was so annoyed by this that a doctor who was on the course with him said that the veins were bulging out from his neck every time somebody told him that Foster Dulles had called. <laughs> so he treated himself, he didn't want to be bothered, in short. He treated himself at the turn to a burger with onions on, and then went to play the back nine. He Dulles, Foster Dulles continued to call him. Eventually they got in touch with one another, but it didn't help Eisenhower's mood because he was annoyed. He thought that there was no reason, that it was inconsequential, that Foster Dulles didn't need to bother him on the golf course. So he was annoyed. He starts to feel bad uh, on that back nine, and rather than play 36 holes, as he's planning to for the day, he decides to cut it short and just play 27. So he's on the eighth hole, his 26th hole of the day, when he says, you know, I'm really not feeling good. I think I'm going to go home. Uh, The press corps is told by the White House press office that he has indigestion, uh, that he's, you know, going to lay low for the day. He he continues to feel worse and worse until around 2 o'clock the next morning, the White House doctor diagnoses that he has had, in fact, had a heart attack, Mm. not indigestion. He has had a heart attack, uh, which is a huge thing, uh, especially when you consider this is pre-25th Amendment. So this is before there was any codified way of uh, who would succeed the president if he had been incapacitated. Now, Nixon, Richard Nixon is the vice president, so presumably it would have been him. But there's nothing in law that suggests how to do it. So we could have had a constitutional crisis, all because of Ike's love of the golf course, winds up not being that big a deal. He convalesces at his farm in Pennsylvania and is eventually fine and serves two terms as president. But a remarkable moment, (laughs) all because of his love and, in some ways, obsession with golf. Yeah, uh, so much so that he had uh, a putting green uh, built just outside the, the Oval Office. So I, I Putting guess, green outside the Oval Office, and there are still spike marks on the uh, wood floors of the Oval Office from Ike walking around in his, in his golf spikes. Yeah. In the Oval Office. Okay. Amazing. <laughs> well, led by uh, Joe Kennedy Sr., uh, uh, President Kennedy's family uh, was a an ultra-competitive uh, one, as I understand it. Yes, uh, they were, uh, and it was it was exactly led by Joe Kennedy, the the, the patron of the family, the patriarch of the family, uh, very into his boys, especially. Um, and them uh, competing and winning, whether it was sailing or football or politics, he was very focused on his guys coming in first. Um, that mentality definitely bled down to John F. Kennedy and his, and his brothers, uh, and his, his eldest brother, excuse me. They would sail together uh, at Harvard. They were quite successful sailors at Harvard together. Um, 
what's interesting about Kennedy, I thought, was the sport that he's best at is golf. Uh, he's a very gifted natural golfer, but because he's worried about the idea that uh, people already think him to be an elitist, uh, you know, comes from money. His, you know, there were conversations back then that his father had sort of bought him a house and a Senate seat. He downplays his golf skill and how much he plays golf to the public. And what does he what does he put in its stead? Football. Now it's touch football, yep. but anyone who remembers the Kennedys remembers uh, those touch football games. What's interesting about them is Kennedy's health was so poor for much of his life that he could barely participate in them. But it's still that sort of aura of Camelot, this idea of them playing. It was totally for perception's sake. Kennedy played more golf than he played football, certainly, but that was the image they wanted out in the public, and that's the one they got. Yeah, exactly. So, and he was quite a sailor too at, at one time. I know he absolutely yeah. was. Yeah. He was a very able sailor. He his father bought him a boat called the Victoria. Um, he would sail regularly in regattas in and around Massachusetts and Cape Cod and win pretty regularly. Uh, and again, that was very much a Joe Kennedy mandate. If you're going to compete, you better win. Absolutely. So he he, he didn't uh, he didn't suffer losers uh, very well. Not at all, including those in his own family. All right, exactly. I know we're coming up on a break. Can you stay with us for a few more minutes? Sure, absolutely. Happy to. Because uh, the, the book mentions New Hampshire a few times, folks, so you'll, you'll want to stay tuned. Uh, our guest on this portion of Kalen Company is Chris Saliza, and he's written a wonderful book called Power Players, Sports, Politics, and the American Presidency. And uh, Chris is going to stay with us. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental and uh, we will be right back right here on WKXL, 1039 FM in the Capital Region, 1019 FM in Manchester and beyond. And, of course, around the world and around the clock on nhtalkradio.com. We're presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Kale and Company live right here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. And our guest is Chris Saliza, and Chris Saliza has written a wonderful book, Power Players, Sports Politics and the American Presidency. And uh, regardless of your party affiliation, a Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever it may be, you will love this book. And as I mentioned, it mentions, it mentions New Hampshire a few times. And, uh, of course, uh, John Sununu was the chief of staff for President uh, George H.W. Bush, who was a, a huge baseball fan and played baseball at Yale, met Babe Ruth. And, uh, and there was a very interesting uh, trip that uh, John Sununu planned while he was chief of staff that brought uh, uh, President George H.W. Bush and Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio together. I love that. Um, first of all, John Sununu, as anyone who lives in New Hampshire knows, has got a lot of good stories. Um, and yeah, Sununu uh, is a big baseball fan, and George H.W. Bush was a really big baseball fan. And so what he does is he organizes a trip that is essentially, um, it, it has an ulterior motive, but it is essentially <laughs> a trip so that Sununu and George W. H. W. Bush, excuse me, can spend time together with DiMaggio and Williams. What's fascinating, I just, can I tell a quick side story about Ted Williams? Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. So, this is, I found this utterly fascinating. So Williams is a conservative guy. Uh, he is uh, 
by nature sort of resistant to the National Democratic Party. So repeatedly, John Kennedy tries to get Ted Williams to endorse him or at least meet with him. And Williams refuses to do so. He says to tell Kennedy that he's a Nixon man, which, again, uh, Nixon and Kennedy were very uh, excuse me, Nixon and Williams were very, very close mm-hmm. and saw themselves as sort of fellow travelers on the conservative road. Uh, in 1969, Williams is the uh, manager in his first year of the uh, 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 Washington senators at the time, and Nixon is in his first year as president. It's probably the best year both of them spend in Washington. Williams winds up being the uh, uh, manager of the year, uh, selected by his peers, and and Nixon in 69 is probably his best year as president of the United States. And that friendship endures, uh, which I thought was, was totally fascinating. Now, later in life, obviously, as you mentioned, later in life, Williams finds himself on a plane with George Bush and John Sununu, essentially two fans who are using, this, using the presidency uh, as a time to get, as a moment to spend time with Williams and, and Joe DiMaggio, two of the, the greatest players of their era. But I, again, I think it speaks to the the fact that for a lot of these presidents, they they were fans first. Uh, you know, I think it's easy to and and a little bit facile to say, oh well, it's, these guys were just using politics and uh, using sports for their political gains. And and look, there was a point where they were doing that. All of them are political people first, and those people they they understood that sports is a common language people speak and used it for their political gain. That said, the Sununu-George H.W. Bush episode with, with DiMaggio and Williams, uh, Nixon's friendship with Williams, these things were genuinely out of fandom. These were people who admired the, the sports figures that they got a chance to meet because of the dint of being president in the United States. And I really thought that was a sort of powerful thing to understand who these people really were, that it's not just all politics all the time, that they were fans, too. They were little kids at one point, too. You know, George H.W. Bush was a little kid uh, looking up to Williams and DiMaggio, and then he got a chance to spend time with Williams and DiMaggio. So, uh... Uh, I, I just I thought that was really an illuminating. I'm glad you mentioned that because most people don't bring that that uh, moment up, and and I thought it was sort of an important moment to 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 a window into who these guys really are. They're just fans in yeah, a lot of ways. Yeah, really. And uh, of course, uh, George H. W. Bush was a, a very good baseball player. Played at Yale, and as we yes. mentioned, uh, met Babe Ruth uh, on uh, one occasion at, at Yale. And uh, you know, and I would can I just well, that story to me is utterly. I won't spend too much time with it, but it's utterly fascinating. So. Ruth donates his memoirs to Yale University Library, and the person who formally receives the memoir is George Herbert Walker Bush because he's the captain of the Yale baseball team at the time. There's a fascinating photo. If you type in Babe Ruth and George W. H.W. Uh, Bush, you'll find it uh, online of the two of them sort of, you know, exchanging greetings. And what's even more poignant about it is that Ruth is dying at that point. He winds up passing away less than a month later. But sort of like that photo of John Kennedy and Bill Clinton, a young Bill Clinton meeting John Kennedy, two hugely historic figures, Babe Ruth and George Herbert Walker Bush, meeting one another when one one was a young man, and one was not an old man, but a middle-aged man. Uh, I thought it was really captivating. Oh, yeah, absolutely so. And, uh, well, while on the subject of the Bushes, George W. Bush uh, stopped at a place uh, very familiar to a lot of New Hampshire <laughs> residents in Nashua, Lita Lanes, to do a little bowling on the campaign swing. 
Yeah, one of my favorite parts. So I'm from Connecticut, and so I grew up duck pin bowling. Now, <laughs> yeah. when I talk to when I talk to other people about duck pin bowling, they, they're they're candle pin. I guess you can also call it. we. I grew up calling it duck pin bowling. They're like, what is that? Uh, so I did take a, a a moment of personal privilege in the book to to explain <laughs> what duck pin bowling was, and yeah. Bush, on the night before the New Hampshire primary, now he goes on to get walloped in that primary by John McCain, by the way, uh, but on the night before the, uh, uh, the New Hampshire primary, he, uh, the 2000 New Hampshire primary, he went duck pin bowling and uh, struggled at the start, as I think anyone would. The ball, obviously, is a little bit smaller. The pins are smaller. Get three throws rather than two. Um, he uh, got the hang of it and actually wound up doing pretty well. Again, I think a testament to the fact that George W. Bush, while he was not a college athlete like his father, was a pretty good overall all-around athlete, sort of a, a relatively able guy, liked sports, was into sports, played sports, um, never sort of mastered one in the sense that he you know, played it throughout college and beyond, but was a good athlete and could pick things up, and that, that is sort of what he did with duck pin bowling. But that Again, one of my favorite sections of the book, because I got to write about duck pin bowling, which I didn't think I'd be able to get to do. <laughs> right. Uh, are there any duck pin uh, bowling alleys left in Connecticut? You know, <laughs> I think, so I wrote about, uh, in, in the course of doing duck pin bowling, uh, I, there, it is remarkable the number, the few lanes that are left. And one of the things, that the reason for it is the guy who came up with the concept and came up with the pin clearer. Yep. He refused to sell that technology to any of the bigger bowling companies, and then he passed away, and the technology went with him. So the only duck pin bowling lanes that still exist are ones that are running on that original wow. technology, so it really can't grow. I, I have not been back. I live in Virginia now. I've not yeah. been back to Connecticut, but I know that duck pin bowling lanes overall are absolutely shrinking for that very kind of weird and interesting reason. Yeah, right. And uh, there are still quite a few candle pin lanes, though, including uh, Lita Lane. So that's uh, okay. that, that's another story for another day. But a, a friend of mine uh, recently wrote a book all about candle pin bowling. Believe it or not. Oh, love it! Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I have to uh, send you that one or, or get in touch with you. Yeah, I love you it. it. It's it's interesting, really. Yeah, is. I love that section of the book. That was so fun to write. Yeah, and and of course uh, George W. Bush, although not not a tremendous athlete, uh, threw the w- without question the most iconic first pitch in the history of Major League Baseball a little over a month after 9-11 in New York. Yes, I I think that for people who only follow sports or politics sort of um, from the periphery, everyone remembers that moment. And uh, I spend a fair amount of time in the book talking about it. You know, it it, it actually, Major League Baseball approached Bush to throw the first pitch in Arizona. Uh, If you remember that World Series, it was between the Arizona Diamondbacks and the New York Yankees. And the the first two games were in Arizona. Uh, Bush said, no, if I'm going to do this, and I'm happy to do it, but if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it in New York, sort of the epicenter of of 9-11. I love, there's a scene in the book where... um, He's underneath uh, Yankee Stadium warming up. There's batting cages under Yankee Stadium. He's sort of throwing and warming up, and he runs into Derek Jeter, the captain of the Yankees, and sort of the face of the organization. And Jeter says to him, are you going to throw from the mound? 
And Bush says, well, I was going to throw from sort of, you know, the front of the mound, make sure I get it there, that sort of thing. And Jeter says, I think you should probably throw it from the mound, like get up on the actual mound and throw it. So then, so Bush is, Bush is having to sort of uh, reconsider his original plan. And then as Jeter is walking out, he says one more thing to Bush. He says, don't bounce it. So Bush, I think, had that very much in his mind when he steps out there. And I would urge people, if you haven't watched it or you didn't watch it live or you don't remember it, go on YouTube and watch it. Uh, it's a remarkable moment. He's Bush is announced, uh, and you can hear sort of trepidation and concern in the crowd. Remember, this is a month removed from the September 11th attack. Uh, there were threats against the country still out there. There were threats against Bush still out there. He gets to the mound. He throws that strike uh, right down the middle, and you can hear the crowd sort of a palpable relief. Uh, and, and I really do think that it, it speaks to when a first pitch is about more than just the first pitch. Uh, it was about saying, we're knocked down, but we're not out. Uh, you know, we're, 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 we're going to get back up from this thing. We're resilient. And I really think that that pitch for a lot of people typified sort of America's response to the 9-11 attack and, uh, and just a, an incredibly powerful moment. And I, again, I would urge people, if you haven't seen it in a while or you don't remember it, go back and watch it. It's, it's incredibly powerful. It, it was, and he threw a perfect strike, too. I mean, that, that was the real, you know, you see all these uh, first pitches uh, in blooper reels and what have you, but uh, George W. Bush threw a perfect strike with the world watching on that night. And, and you know, it's funny, I can remember where I was watching that. And you might have heard of this place, uh, too, Chris, being a Connecticut native Ryan's Deli in Vernon, uh, Connecticut. Yes, yes I was, absolutely. I know it. Uh, yep. I, I was watching it at Ryan's Deli. I'll never forget on a, a Tuesday night. Uh, Chris, it's a it's a fantastic book, and I would recommend it for for anyone. It's uh, power players, sports politics, and the American presidency. And our our guest, Chris Saliza. And uh, Chris, thanks so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for taking so much time with me. All right. Terrific. Thanks so much. And that'll do it for our chat with Chris. We could go on and on. Lots of great anecdotes in that book. Kale and Company live right here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Great to have you with us on a Tuesday. Lots to talk about on this Tuesday morning in terms of news and sports, and we'll be doing that right after these words were presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Great to have you along with us. And uh, thanks to our guest, Chris Saliza. And uh, the book is terrific. It has some great pictures uh, in it, too. And, and one of them is uh, George W. Bush showing great form in October of uh, 2001, uh, a little over a month after 9-11, throwing out uh, the opening pitch for Game 3 of the World Series between the Yankees and the Arizona Diamondbacks. And he's got his uh, right foot on the pitcher's rubber, uh, the mound, and is uh, showing perfect form, and he threw a perfect strike. It was amazing. I, I, I got chills watching that first pitch back in uh, 2001, right after uh, the 9-11 attacks. Well, also in sports, uh, the Red Sox, well, they lost uh, last night 5-4. to four. They blew a, a four-run lead in that one. Chris Sale went uh, five innings. And for the first time in his career, in five innings, he did not strike out one batter. He was coming off an 
uh, strikeout performance in his previous start, did not strike out anybody in five innings last night, and he had never gone in a start more than one inning without striking out a batter. He went five last night without fanning anyone, and uh, that has to be a little bit of a concern. When Chris Sale goes five innings, uh, gives up uh, as many runs as he did, and did not strike out a batter, it, uh, it is very concerning. Uh, Red Sox will play uh, again tonight in Baltimore against the Orioles, who have now won seven in a row. Over the second time in 15 years, the Green Bay Packers are trading an aging icon to the New York Jets. Packers agreed Monday to send quarterback Aaron Rodgers and their 2023 first-round pick, number 15 overall, and a 2023 fifth-round pick to the Jets for New York's 2023 first-round pick, which is 13th in the draft, a 2023 second-round pick, and a 2023 sixth-round pick, pick, and a conditional 2024 second-round pick that becomes a first if Rodgers plays 65% of the plays this season. That's what sources told ESPN's Adam Schefter on Monday. Although a Hall of Fame quarterback and Jets franchise icon Joe Namath gave Rodgers his blessing to wear number 12, which he wore for many years in Green Bay, the new Jets quarterback is expected to wear number 8, the number he wore in college at Cal, a source told uh, ESPN. Of course, the uh, last aging icon that the Packers traded to the Jets was uh, Brett Favre. Uh, I think that was back in uh, 2008, if I recall. Uh, But uh, Aaron Rodgers now a member of the New York Jets, and he will wear, reportedly anyway, number eight. Last night we saw one of the more uh, amazing individual performances I, I think I've ever seen on a, on a basketball court. And it was put on by Jimmy Butler. And uh, his nickname is Playoff Jimmy. Well, he certainly lived up to that last night. Butler, 56 points as the Miami Heat came from behind to defeat the Milwaukee Bucks. 119 to 114, and Miami now with a three games to one lead in that series. Miami, the eighth seed in the East coming in. Milwaukee, with the best record in basketball, the number one seed in the East, and Miami is now within one victory of advancing to the second round of the NBA playoffs. An amazing performance uh, last night. 56 points from Jimmy Butler. One of the great uh, playoff, perhaps, uh, games of all time. And certainly uh, the best playoff game in the history of the Miami Heat by an individual. And they've had some pretty good players on that team, like uh, LeBron James and Chris Bosh and uh, so many more. And... uh, I tell you, Jimmy Butler stole the show uh, last night. And in Los Angeles, with less than 30 seconds to go in overtime in uh, last night's Game 4 against the Memphis Grizzlies, 
Lakers 38-year-old star LeBron James playing in his 45th minute of the game made a layup while being fouled by his first-round foil, Dylan Brooks. If you follow that series at all, you know that uh, Brooks and James have been going back and forth. Lakers won the game 117-111, to 111, and they now have a three-games-to-one lead in that series over the Memphis Grizzlies. So lots of things going on uh, in the world of sports. Tampa Bay Rays stay hot. They won their 14th straight uh, at home last night. Celtics will continue their playoff action tonight. They can wrap up their series with the Atlanta Hawks at the TD Garden. Celtics and the Hawks will be getting underway tonight at 7.30. Game five of that series at the TD Garden. I I checked on uh, StubHub. There are some tickets uh, available for that one. And uh, the Boston Bruins, they will be off until tomorrow night. And they can wrap up their first-round series tomorrow night against the Florida Panthers at the TD Garden. That is a 7 o'clock face-off for that one. So always busy uh, in the world of sports and in the world of news as well. Of course, as many of you uh, heard uh, by now, President Joe Biden has announced that he will be seeking a second term as president of the United States. Uh, That was uh, released this morning, I think just before 6 o'clock. The Wall Street Journal editorial board argued President Biden is too old to run for re-election on Friday. Amid reports, he's likely to announce uh, his bid next week. And, of course, he did uh, early this morning. Uh, The editors of the Wall Street Journal wrote, the public understands what Mr. Biden apparently won't admit, that electing an octogenarian in obvious decline for another four years could be an historic mistake. The editors continued, and I quote, asking the country to elect a man who is 80 years old and whose second term would end when he is 86 is a risky act that borders on selfish. The editors allege that the White House goes to great lengths to hide what they speculate is Biden's declining health. But his decline is clear to anyone who isn't willfully blind, argued the editors of the Wall Street Journal. They pointed to his lack of press conferences, scripted appearances, and public stumbles as evidence for their positions. They wrote that Different people age at different rates, but the risk of an, ex, uh, an accelerated decline for Mr. Biden is considerable. The chance that he could serve a full second term is hardly assured. The editors argued that Vice President Kamala Harris would make a poor commander-in-chief and that she would nearly be unelectable should Biden be forced to drop out of the race. In that event, voters on the fence could swing toward a Republican nominee who can at least meet the rigors of the office. Yes, even Donald Trump, according to the editors of the uh, Wall Street Journal. The editors contended that Biden is not the only Democrat who can defeat former President Trump in a general election. They said that if Biden were to announce that he will not run, which he's not going to do now, Uh, That would give ample time for younger Democratic governors to get in the race. The editors argue that the best reason for Biden not to run is patriotism, invoking a 2000 campaign ad by then-Senator Hillary Clinton 
They questioned his fitness to serve. In 2008, Hillary Clinton ran an ad saying that she was prepared to take a 3 a.m. phone call in a crisis. Could an 84-year-old Joe Biden take a 3 p.m. call? So uh, there you go. The Wall Street uh, Journal editors uh, saying that uh, Biden should not run in 2024, although he announced earlier today that he will, in fact, be in the race. And they also announced something uh, interesting last night, but not necessarily surprising, that there will be no debates on the Democratic side. There aren't that many candidates out there right now anyway. Marianne Williamson, the uh, the author, uh, is out there. And Robert Kennedy uh, Jr. Uh, threw his hat in the ring the other day. But the DNC announced that there would be no, regardless of who else might get in the race, Joe Biden will not debate. And there will be no debates on the Democratic side uh, during the primary campaign for the 2024 presidential election. So they made that clear last night. Joe Biden will not be debating. The only debate that he could uh, then be involved in is the one against the Republican nominee. So they have uh, switched the primary states around uh, as best they could, putting South Carolina first. But we know in our hearts that New Hampshire will still be number one. So they have uh, tried to, uh, you know, change the rules as much as they could to clear the path for uh, Joe to win again. We'll take a break. Kale and Company Live continues here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Thanks for being with us today. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Kale and Company Live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Huge media news yesterday. I mean, unprecedented. In the same day, two of the most high-profile hosts on cable news were given their walking papers. How about that, huh? Don Lemon from CNN and Tucker Carlson from Fox News, both on the same day. I mean, within like an hour at the most of each other. And uh, CNN put out an analysis by uh, one of their writers, Oliver Darcy. Fox News' sudden firing of Tucker Carlson may have come down to one simple calculation. So uh, Mr. Darcy starts his article by saying, why? That is the question I've been asked and expect to continue to be asked more than any other after the seismic news that Fox had fired its highest-rated host, Tucker Carlson. The news, which rocked both the media and political worlds, begs for an answer to that fundamental question. But answering it is anything but easy. In the hours following Carlson's abrupt dismissal from the right-wing channel, a number of explanations have emerged, all with plausibility. It goes without saying that it was no coincidence that the dismissal came just days after Fox's historic settlement with Dominion Voting Systems. But what specifically about that case prompted Carlson's undoing remains murky. 
Perhaps it was re- uh, related to ex-producer Abby Gross- Grossberg's uh, lawsuit against the network, which alleged rampant sexism and anti-Semitic behavior behind the scenes at Carlson's show. Or perhaps it was profanity-laced remarks, some of which were redacted in the Dominion Discovery documents that Carlson privately made disparaging his colleagues, including Fox Brass, like the upper echelon of Fox Brass, like the Murdochs. Or perhaps Rupert Murdoch and his chief executive son wanted to send a message about who is ultimately in command at the company after having been embarrassed for months with the public airing of Fox's dirty laundry. It's possible it was all of the above, given that each of the issues are intertwined. For its part, Fox News did not offer an explanation for Carlson's ouster in the short statement that the network put out announcing the bombshell decision. The announcement was, We thank him for his service to the network as a host and prior to that as a contributor. Carlson also offered no comment on Monday, ignoring my many texts, that's Mr. Darcy's many texts, and phone calls seeking information. Which leaves us in a frustrating position. We know the basic contours of how the decision was made. The son of Rupert Murdoch and uh, Suzanne Scott, who's the head of Fox News, came to agreement Friday evening about canceling Carlson's show and informed him on Monday morning just before publicly announcing the news. But we are unable to say definitively, definitively for now what led to the firing of one of the most powerful figures in modern America media and politics. One veteran television news executive told me, Mr. Darcy writing the article, that they believe the decision came down to a straightforward calculation by the Murdochs. Risk versus reward. There is a lot of drama and intrigue, but this is always about managing risk versus reward, the person said. I know that's not very exciting, But it's how these decisions get made at the highest level, the executive added. A weighing of the negatives and risks to the business versus the positives or benefits. And if you're the Murdochs, it's easier to say now holding on to Carlson comes with much more risk than reward. Carlson is not a team player and, in fact, is uncontrollable. He carries legal baggage, and the Murdochs are trying to put an end to the legal disputes they find themselves in. He regularly births negative news cycles about the network that tarnish the brand, and Fox News is desperate to emerge from the cloud of negative press it has been the subject of recently. Meanwhile, mainstream advertisers have stayed far away from Carlson's show, which is far too toxic to associate with. The Murdochs also have plenty of evidence to support the bet that Fox News is bigger than any single person. Just look at Glenn Beck, Bill O'Reilly, Megan Kelly, and others who have exited the network. None of them have bigger platforms today than they did when they were on Fox News. They all have a less powerful megaphone than the one they carried 
when employed by the Murdochs. Meanwhile, the network itself has endured. It is pretty much enshrined as a law of physics in the universe of right-wing media that whoever the Murdochs put in prime time will rate. In some cases, certain shows have outrated their predecessors. Beck was replaced by the higher-rated The Five, for, for example. All that said, Carlson will test the hypothesis that Fox News as a brand trumps any single personality. Carlson is a force unlike any other in right-wing media and politics. He commands a loyal audience that is really not akin to anything else in the space. If he were to turn up on another channel, it's certainly possible that a not-so-insignificant chunk of his audience would follow him over, especially with former President Donald Trump eager to rip the Murdochs and fan chaos in right-wing media. Which is all to say that while the Murdochs may have made a calculated bet that the odds will remain in their favor, it is still a bet, and it's not clear exactly how things will shake out when the dice land. So there you have it, folks. Tucker Carlson out at Fox. Don Lemon, or as Tucker Carlson used to call him, Don Lemon, out at CNN on a monumental Media Monday. That's what we're going to call it, the 3M. Monumental Media Monday. So, <laughs> so there you go. And uh, there'll be speculation about what's, you know, behind, you know, the story behind the story. There'll be thousands and thousands of articles written about it. You'll be uh, hearing about it. Uh, Fox will be talking about what CNN did, did to Don Lemon. And, and uh, CNN will be talking about what Fox did to Tucker Carlson. And uh, it'll go on and on. And uh, we may never really get to the bottom of it. All we know is that uh, Tucker and and uh, Don Lemon are both out at their respective networks. And I do, I honestly believe that some media mogul, some media mogul, maybe an HBO perhaps, you know, uh, who uh, they're not afraid of politics. Uh, they have Bill Maher on, uh, and uh, he is very outspoken. Wouldn't it be something if they got Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon together on the same program? How about that? That would be uh, that would uh, certainly be of intrigue uh, to a lot of people who follow uh, cable news. But uh, at any rate, that's the way it stands right now, and we shall be uh, following that story in the days and weeks and months ahead to see how it all shakes out. Hey, one uh, sports note that I forgot to mention earlier: the Houston Rockets have agreed on a deal. To hire Ime Udoka, former Celtics coach, as the franchise's uh, next coach, according to uh, sources from ESPN. The hiring comes nearly three months after the uh, Celtics suspended and dismissed Udoka for an improper workplace relationship, a situation the Rockets investigated with the league office and with the Celtics, among others, before making the job offer. In his one season as head coach of the Celtics, Udoka took the Celtics to the NBA Finals against the Golden State Warriors. Celtics, of course, 
wound up uh, losing that series, but uh, Ime made his uh, his presence felt as a first-year coach last year in the NBA, and now he is going to take on the lowly Houston Rockets. Well, that music tells us that it is time. It is time to mosey on out of here and make way for some more great programming here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Kale and Company Live is presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. You can learn more and find your plan at Delta Dental Covers Me. Hope you have a great Tuesday, everyone. Join us tomorrow for more here on Kale & Company, WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com.